All right, hello and welcome to The Dumb Will Speak. Uh, today we have a honor and a privilege and a joy, as I'm going to say for the second time now, um, of interviewing somebody that has very been very influential throughout Roy and I. Uh, friendship, I know, but um, through ministry as I be began ministry. Um, a podcast that is available for free for download. Uh, it is When We Understand the Text, and today we get the joy of just interviewing Pastor Gabriel Hughes. Thank you so much for coming on here. I mean, just, we really do appreciate it. I cannot stress that enough. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So we were talking just a little bit about describing your role. So if you could just describe your role at where you're at now and how that kind of came to be. Yeah, I am uh, the education pastor at First Baptist Church in Lindale, Texas. I've known Tom Buck, who's the senior pastor here, known him for a number of years. Uh, and opportunity just came up for us to be able to do ministry together. And uh, I love serving here at the church. I help to write curriculum. I oversee all of the Sunday school departments and get to preach every once in a while, too. Sometimes Tom lets me out of my box and into the pulpit. So uh, it's uh, it's been a blessing. Uh, Texas is hot, but uh, they are great people here in East Texas who love the Lord, and we continue to grow in the knowledge of his word. And um, you really and truly, I'll say this, you couldn't serve under someone better, I don't think. He, he is such a helpful person and i think there's a there's an aspect of him that people uh don't talk about enough um he if if you reach out he will come along beside you and help uh yes. and, and minister to you any way he can he he you know I, the conversations are private but i will say i reached out to him and he was gracious enough to call back and has helped guide through some things been a very very influential person to be able to come along and minister such soft-hearted i mean so you serve under such a generous uh, person. I mean, he really has that. Oh, yeah. He's a great man and a great family. His wife is wonderful, too. Uh, if you have ever been involved with the uh, expository workshops that G3 are doing, Tom is the guy that heads all of that, facilitates all of that. And if, if you've ever participated in that, have a chance to talk with Tom, then you know how generous and caring he can be. He especially cares for pastors, and a, a lot of those pastors that will come in on those expository workshops, a lot of times are small church guys. You know, they're not coming from these mega churches to come in to do these workshops. They're in little bitty churches and just learning how to exposit the word and teach it to their people. And so Tom really does have a, a very generous heart with those men and wants to give them his time exchanging phone numbers with them and so even afterward when the conference is over and everything they're still giving him phone calls and text sending him texts and uh, he is generous to answer everybody and give them his time absolutely now go back to you i want to explain i want to get something Let, oh, first let's just say this like, have you been permanently banned from twitter i know you and i had a brief <laughs> exchange is it permanent or are you just in a temporary place or yeah, it came up on my phone that Wednesday, I guess Wednesday morning, I think it was. Uh, uh, so it's only been about a week now, a little more than a week. But it came up on my phone, permanent suspension. That was the big, bold text that I got. <laughs> I, was getting, I was getting text messages from friends who were telling me, dude, what happened? And I'm going, I don't know. I'm still in bed. So I pulled up Twitter and then got the, uh, got the bad news that I had been booted. And honestly, I was still laying next to my wife and I looked at her and I said, what took him so long? <laughs> <laughs> me off Twitter. Well, and the, 
Do, do you mind sharing the post? I share, I'm sure you don't. The post that it's a biblically true statement that, that got you banned. Right. Do, do you yeah, remember what it was offhand? Uh, I don't remember the exact wording off the top of my head, but it was something like, you know, what do these sins uh, deserve? Uh, like, what do these sins have in common? And it was things like homosexuality, incest, um, uh, rape, um, and uh, adultery and things like that. And then the answer underneath that was they all deserve the death penalty. And I said, turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. The yeah. point was you can have salvation from death by turning to Christ, but that's not the way people read it. And I got turned into a, a hate monger as a result of that tweet. Well, my understanding is that they, they all said uh, you're promoting hate speech, that you want to turn the clock back, make America basically a theocracy and we're going to have to change all the laws, and these people, you're gonna round all these people up, put them in a camp somewhere, or burn them at the stake as heretics and witches, and that's, you didn't say that at all. You were just proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, they, they sure they sure read a lot into 280 yeah. characters. <laughs> I, managed to get a, I managed to get a whole political manifesto in there, but that was- What would have uh, happened if you'd only had the original 140? Maybe you wouldn't have got into so much trouble, but you know, they, they blew it up a few <laughs> years ago and gave us more time to, to, to get ourselves in trouble. Oh, by the way, I've That's never right. been on Twitter, and I'm still not, so it doesn't affect me. But I, I hate that you got, you know, deplatformed. I think they call it. So now, yeah, it is what it is. That's right. I, I know. In a recent podcast, you said <laughs> you were. It was a Q and A, and you were talking uh, with that. That is your wife, right, Becky? Yeah, my Nicole. wife who joins me on right. Q and A on Friday. And you, you yeah. said that's just one last thing I've got to look at on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure she's thankful for that as well. But she's still on Twitter and she even made a comment later that day or something like that. She said, the reason for me being on Twitter has just been banned. Oh. So she doesn't know what, what she's going to do with it anymore either. And now how did, when we understand the text, how did that come about? Well, that started, let's see, it would have been about 2013 or 2014. I had only been a senior pastor for about a year or two at that point. Um, I had I had been a pastor since 2010, but then the senior pastor that I had served under, he went to go plan a church and I took over after him. So just after about a year or two of doing that, I would, I, I was really enjoying preaching. I mean, immensely. I did not realize how much I enjoyed doing this uh, one Sunday to the next. I had a lot of preaching experience prior to becoming a senior pastor. I worked at a Christian radio station and part of that job entailed doing pulpit supply for a lot of churches. Mm. And we would plug the Christian radio station and say, you know, we're only on the air because of your support, but I would, I would, it was still a responsibility to uh, write an entire sermon. So I had preached in over a hundred churches even prior to becoming a pastor. But then when I, when I committed myself to preaching day in and day out uh, uh, into one book of the Bible and taking, you know, the, the congregation through an entire book and then finishing that book and starting another one. I was unaware of how much I was going to enjoy that and doing all that in service to the Lord. And so after about a year or two of preaching, uh, I'm looking at all these nodding heads in my congregation. Everybody's loving my preaching. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'll say something, I get a bunch of amens, and it's like, this is the most agreeable Baptist church on the planet. And then I would uh, I would go home and I would pull up social media and people from my congregation were posting things on social media, usually a meme or a video that was contrary to what I said that morning. Oh, yeah. So oh. I, I just preached it. And now you're posting something that's exactly the opposite of what I said. And so then I started getting frustrated and I was at a friend's house 
who actually helped me come up with when we understand the text. And I was venting. I was complaining about my own congregation. Uh, and he was a member of that congregation. And uh, and I said, why do they post such stupid videos? It, it, they they say amen and then they go home and they do the opposite. Why don't they come up with better videos? And then he said, well, come up with your own, make your own videos. And that was like revolutionary to me. I never even thought of making my own videos. So I said, yeah, I can do my own. When we started with some different ideas, it was just me looking at a camera and talking. And I really don't like my face on things. Uh, I have a voice for radio, but not the, uh, and, and also the face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our so, club. Uh, so I, I didn't like talking to the camera. I didn't like that concept. So we thought, what else can we come up with? And we wanted to do something that had the same catchphrase in every video. Uh, kind of like the way Paul Harvey would finish his programs with, and now you know the rest of the story. You know, and we yeah. wanted to have some sort of line at the end like that. So we came up, at first it was understanding the text. And then somehow that turned into when we understand the text. And another guy that was helping us with our social media stuff, because I actually, I was not on social media at all. I didn't have Facebook, Twitter, anything like that. And, uh, and we had a young guy who said, well, you have to be on social media. Of course, the young guys that are going to tell us to do that. So, uh, so he built the Twitter platform for us and a Facebook page and all this kind of thing. And and he said, you know, when you abbreviate when we understand the text, it says what? And <laughs> that was like, so we could do this thing like, what does the Bible say? You know, that, that yeah, would kind of right, be the, right. uh, sort of the the introduction to it, and then finishing with when we understand the text. And, uh, and then I threw in my own Tim Allen impression at the beginning of every video, and then I'm going, what? You know? <laughs> so, so that was kind of how all of that started pulling together. And we were addressing Bible topics in the very beginning that, you know, the videos were about four and a half minutes or something like that with the first four that we did. But then when we were talking about some other topics that we could do, uh, those topics didn't need to take you know, five or 10 minutes to explain. You could do those in 90 seconds. And that kind of came from my radio background because everything's in 30 second increments. It's either 30, 60 or 90 seconds. So we decided we'll do these 90 second videos. We'll do about 10 of those and then we'll do another long video and then we'll do 10 more short videos. But then once we started doing the short videos, I never went back to the long videos. So everything, uh, everybody got used to the 90 second format and that became just kind of the regular thing. So we were addressing topics that were like, you know, putting Jeremiah 29, 11 back in its proper context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right. a plan to prosper and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. So uh, that, that's not your that's not a verse that's going to give you fame and fortune. It's not God giving you all your hopes and dreams. What does that verse really mean? And we can explain that in 90 seconds. Uh, or doing like God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, but what does the Bible say about something like that? So those began to be the topics that we were addressing with those videos. Uh, and then in 2015, it was in August of 2015, we wanted to do a podcast. Or so, It was in the summer that we started talking about it in that year, uh, doing a podcast where the nature of the podcast would be explaining the videos with a little bit longer explanation. So some people were saying, hey, I love the 90 second videos, but I feel like you could spend another, you know, 10 to 20 minutes talking about this topic. So a friend of mine and I said, well, why don't we start a podcast? We'll do it once a week and we'll address a what video and then just uh, like spend more time talking about it than just the 90 seconds we gave it. 
we only did one episode like that, and you can't find it anywhere. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's what episode zero zero zero. If for whatever reason the audio happens to be floating around on the internet, that was our pilot episode, just the experiment that we did. And then the friend of mine who was going to do it with me just decided not to. He he just wasn't interested in it anymore. And so it got around to the start of August, and I decided I still wanted to do a podcast, but I didn't know what to do. We had already teased it. There were still people that were waiting for it and things like that. And so I just decided to open up the mic and open up my Bible and talk. And I was just going to teach on the podcast the same way that I did uh, that I did a Sunday school class or something like that. And so uh, that became something that um, was also uh, for the benefit of our church. Um, when, uh, at the time I was the pastor of a church that was a very military church. Sorry, this is turning into a much longer explanation. No, I was, no, no go ahead. No, no, we're enjoying this. You kidding me? <laughs> uh, anyway, the, uh, I was a pastor of a military church at the time. 60% of our congregation was either active or retired military. Huh. And so we had a lot of soldiers that would go overseas and their, their duty, uh, tour would be anywhere from six months to a year. They could be gone six, nine or 12 months. And uh, and we had some guys that were coming home from uh, from their overseas duty, and they would have to get reacclimated with you know there was like a, a certain training that the military did to get everybody used to being home again. You know you've been overseas for a year, you've gotten used to that lifestyle, and now you have to learn how to flush a toilet again or something. <laughs> I, you know sometimes they would make jokes about the the various things they would train you to do, but the things that they would not train you in were things like like becoming the head of your household again, um, leading your wife and kids in devotions. You know, the military isn't going to teach you things like that. You've been separated from your family for nine. Now, how do you come back and be the spiritual head of your household? And so I would get together with those guys who would not talk to me while they were overseas. They said, I have very limited time to talk. And if I'm going to have the chance to talk, I'm going to talk. Communication while they were deployed. Uh, and and when they got back, I was hearing the same stories from those guys. They were telling me, my wife and I, our marriage is in shambles. I mean, it feels like we're picking up and starting brand new again. And there's all these tensions and uh, and uh, animosity that we have to work through. And uh, suddenly it's like this person's a stranger to me and I don't know who they are. How can we help this? How, how do we work through this? And one of the things that both the husbands and the wives would tell me they would say that whenever they would get on their video calls while the husband was deployed, they didn't have anything to talk about. And the husband would tell me, I can't tell her about my work. And all she's doing is complaining about bills or the kids. And so we don't have anything to talk about. And they're not enjoyable conversations. And it just builds this tension between us. So what can we do? What, what, how do we keep our... Um, our devotional life, our Christian life, encouraging one another in the Lord. How do we keep that fresh even while I'm deployed? And so I was doing this podcast where I'm doing Bible teaching, and I told these soldiers, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to the Bible podcast every day. They all had, you know, phones or whatever they could use, uh, MP3 players that they could download the podcast. So I, I said, download the podcast, listen to it every day. Have your wife listen to it also. And when you call her up, you say, and you know, you can t share things about the kids, what's going on at the house, so on and so forth. But then ask her, so did you listen to Gabe on the podcast today? What did you learn? 
and then let that guide your conversation. You guys talk about what you read in the Bible that day or what you heard being taught in Scripture as you did your devotional lessons. And after a year of doing that, so so like one deployment, basically, we had soldiers that were coming home and were telling me, this podcast saved our marriage. We wow. would not have been able to uh, uh, to sustain our relationship, me being so far away, if it were not for the fact that we were studying the Bible together and we're studying the same thing and we're talking about the Lord and we're praying together and we're talking about what you said and what we read and and they said it it saved our marriage. Our hey. our our marriage is even coming out better than it was before because we started listening to the podcast. That's great. And so that kind of became the nature of the podcast. Uh, and it took a year or two to develop that because, um, you know, when I first started it, that wasn't really the aim. That wasn't the goal. But then it became something that was a service to our congregation, to our church. So even the so whether it was the videos or whether it was the podcast. Both of these aspects of the ministry, when we understand the text, came about as a service to a small local Kansas congregation and then developed into something that was much bigger than I ever anticipated it to be. I, I never thought that I was going to be making videos that were going to get a quarter of a million views. And, and they're not commercialized. I don't make money off of them. Uh, I don't want to have any ads on them because people will, you know, I'll get calls from evangelists who will say, it's real easy for me to pull up my phone and uh, type in one of your videos, and it's just 90 seconds, and as I'm witnessing to someone there on the street, I can just hand it to them, and, and they, can watch, uh, uh, they, can, they can watch a quick video. And so if, if that's going to be the use, you know, if, if somebody wants to have quick access to a video, then I don't want to have commercials on them because now you have to sit through a you know, 15 to 30-second commercial. Right. So I don't make money off of this. It's, it's just something that I want to do as a teacher of God's Word to continue to help people in, in understanding the Bible. And I'm grateful to the Lord that he's given me, you know, even the, the small chunk of time and, and, uh, and space to be able to utilize this ministry for his glory. Well, and the one that really, I, I don't know if it was Roy or, or we heard about it, the one that got me turned on to you several years ago, um, you did one on the King James only. You know, you know that controversy that everybody kind of deals right. with in some way yeah. or another. You did that video. It's been several, several years ago because... Most likely where you were in Kansas and where you are now, you kind of deal with that in some form or fashion. We deal with it here in western Kentucky. We, we do deal with that quite a bit, that you're just a heretic if you are li- or reading anything other than the King James. And that was one of the first videos for me. And then it led into you know listening and just watching those videos for countless hours. My wife and I did, actually. And uh, Yeah, we— there was a local pastor in the same town that I was in, in Kansas, who uh, <laughs> I guess just got a, a burr up his rear end one uh, one Sunday, and he decided to go on a tear about how, oh, that pastor over there at First Southern Baptist Church, he's a heretic because he uh, doesn't preach from the King James Bible. Yeah. And uh, somebody from his church told me that and said, you know, our pastor was ripping on you on Sunday because you don't preach from the King James. And I said, okay, well, that's funny. Um, uh, and so it, that started, that started some questions like, why don't you, like, why don't you preach from the King James? What would be the, uh, what would be the reasons that you would give for why the King James Bible is not the divinely authorized English translation of the Bible? So through those conversations that kind of developed the, 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 uh, the script that I ended up doing for the, the King James only controversy, <laughs> yeah. I haven't been, 
I haven't been deeply embroiled in that. I've just kind of stumbled upon it here and there. But yeah, growing up in the South and even in the Midwest, we encounter those churches that are 1611, oh, yeah. King James only preaching churches. Yep. And they don't have the 1611. No, That's the funny no. thing about it. And they it. don't have the 1611. Exactly. That's exactly right. Despite yeah. the fact they couldn't read the King James 1611 well, if they had it. Now, I do want to get a important bit of information out of the way just so Roy can hear this, okay? You're an all millennial, correct? That's correct. Okay, yes, good. See, see, so most smart people, smarter than us, are all millennials. Well, no. I just want to get that out. See, I, I, I'm all millennial, and and we have fun, you know, kind of picks back and forth here. I just want to make sure he's much smarter. But than but we are. but now listen, <laughs> I, I do listen to your podcast, and I know you spoke in response to a question. It may have even been this past week, in which a lady sent in a thing. I remember her saying, "I'm over forty. I'm over fifty. Well, I'm almost at fifty. I'll be there this year." But uh, you know, you, you said. At the church you, you serve, Tom is, I think you described him as dispensational, right? He's, he's a dispensationalist. All right, yeah, and then you said you had a, tradi- a more historical premillennialist, you had a postmillennialist, and then you were amillennialist. So there's four right. elders that can get along and pastor <laughs> a flock exactly. without killing each other or, or, or writing each other off as anathema because of their views on eschatology. Well, we kind of <laughs> have, right. have that here. Um, our senior pastor, pastor teacher... Uh, Pastor Tom, honestly, is uh, he leans more dispensational. Yeah. Uh, the education pastor, like like yourself, he is um, uh, the uh, his elder. He is kind of a, he calls himself a pan-millennial. He's like, you know, I see a little bit of truth in every one of them. You that's know, true. And and yeah. so that's what he calls himself. And then myself as an elder, I'm I'm an all-millennial. So you kind of and we all get along and it's all fun and it, it but you know the amazing the people that split over. Those secondary and tertiary issues still, and that uh, is secondary, yeah. And uh, yeah, but let's get into something now that you and I had discussed briefly, and this is kind of what led to this was you and I talking on Twitter back and forth about yes, um, what happened in California. The the Southern Baptist Convention happened. Uh, I think you coined it best. I'm going to give you this. You were the first one that I read this with was the liberal drift. We're not calling it liberal, but there is a drift. Uh, toward women pastors, toward women elders, they're, they're, they're drifting very liberal. And I may even argue it's not at a snail's pace anymore. It seems to be picking up steam. Would you agree? Or Oh, yeah. And yeah, I would agree that it is, it, it, it is rapidly increasing. Uh, and I would say that the whole debate over critical race theory and intersectionality has really ramped it up. Yes. Uh, so after 2019 in, what, was that Birmingham? I think was it was Birmingham or Nashville. One of the I'm two. sorry. It was Birmingham or Nashville, one of the two. Nashville was last year. Well, Nashville was 2021. That That's was right. Yeah, 19 was Birmingham. Right. So 19 would have had to have been Birmingham. So with Resolution 9 and every, all the debate that was around critical race theory and intersectionality, I really think that the, the wokeism uh, has ramped up this acceleration toward, uh, toward liberalism. And, and we're seeing that all over the culture. Because if you'll remember, you know, it was back in 2015 that the Obergefell decision was handed down by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And at that time, everybody's just arguing about how homosexuals just want to love each other. They just want to get married. And there wasn't there was hardly any talk on the horizon at that time of transitioning little kids from boys into girls. And and in less than less than five years after that, suddenly you're. You're the, this hateful person if you will not acknowledge a child by their preferred pronouns. Which is insane. And so you see how, uh, how these identity politics have, have really ramped up the entire culture toward leftism. And it's going further and further left. 
And it's almost like whatever evil we haven't gotten to yet, we're going to invent it so we can get to it quicker. Now, that's just that's just talking about the culture in general. Mm -hmm. But then you see happening within the Southern Baptist Convention, this direction toward liberalism happening at a faster pace as well. And it's the it's the woke politics that have accelerated that direction. So that's not to say that that the SBC has accepted the transgenderism politics that no. I don't mean to make that connection at all. But just to show that uh, the, the woke politics or the identity politics have accelerated the cultural direction to the left. And so the SBC, which was already flirting with pragmatism, uh, as they've been deeply entrenched in pragmatism for the last couple of decades, that desire to want to. Uh, to want to appeal to unbelievers, to to the outside world, uh, and uh, and using whatever methods that are available to us to attract the most number of people, that desire within the heart of people within the SBC uh, has also made them accepting of the CRT intersectionality politics. It might be a lighter version of it than what we see in the culture, but they've nonetheless been receptive of it. The example, of course, being Resolution 9 and all the debate around wokeism that had happened in 2019. So those things have certainly accelerated the direction to the left in the SBC. And if there's any greater example that we have of that after Anaheim, it's the fact that the, the Southern Baptist Convention became receptive, receiving of women pastors at Anaheim. There, there's, there's simply no other way to summarize that. That was the end of the debate at Anaheim is that, well, now I guess we can have women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, Pastor Gabe, this is Roy. Uh, Roy's rants always start with this. History, because you, you, don't, you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? The old saying goes. That's right. Historically, in Protestant denominations, the drift always begins with the ordination of women. And I'm not anti-woman. I have five sisters. I had a mother, two grandmothers that I love dearly. It doesn't make you anti-woman to say, but there's an order to things in creation that God ordained and he put it in his scripture. It's how we live our lives. It's how we are to organize our family, the government of the family, which was the first government he instituted through marriage. And it has to be through marriage. It's not just shacking up. Um, God has a plan for it. And when you don't follow that plan, and that includes having women teach in a mixed setting over men. Uh, Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach and have authority over men, Right. When, we, when you deny that and say, well, there's a difference between the, quote, office of the pastor and the spiritual calling of a pastor, oh, that, okay, that part bugs me because there is no difference. The scripture doesn't call it that. It just says right. any man, if a man desires to attain to the role of elder, he, he desires a good thing. That's how it says, depending on your translation, which we'll get to at the end of the show because I always ask everybody their favorite translation, so I'll need you to tell me your favorite translation before we get off the show today. <laughs> All righty. Because uh, that's just my thing. I'm, I'm big on Bible translations and, and whatnot. But, yeah, this is, this is a problem I have. And um, an episode that, that you produced, you talked about the three largest congregations in the SBC, yes. that every one yes. of them have now accepted a female. That's right. And, and that pastor. was the case. That was the case before we got to Anaheim. Like yeah. these things have been going on in the Southern Baptist Convention for a while. It was just that there was never an, an acceptance of women as pastors from the platform or from the floor of the SBC uh, over the course of the conservative resurgence. Like, you know, if this was going on in the liberalism of the SBC back in the 70s and 80s, 
that was before my time. I don't I don't even know of that. But since the conservative resurgence, right. there has not been a stated acceptance of women pastors from the platform or from the floor until Anaheim. Now, I don't again, think the rank was, and file know that, though, that this has been going on. And I'm sad to say that I'm not sure that many of the rank and file care because I think yeah, their own right. uh, the, the average I'm talking about the average uh, pew warmer. That's what I'll call them. That sits right. in the congregation of an SBC church are so illiterate of the Bible. And much of that does fall on, I hate to say this, but it's got to do with bad leadership. They've not yes, been shepherded absolutely. correctly. I'm not blaming you or, 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 or Tom or any <laughs> the others, and certainly not the church where we go. But, you know, uh, a week or two ago, uh, our pastor, Tom, made the statement that we're the only church in our local association that has eldership instead of a pastor deacon committee. Oh, that's interesting. And, yeah. and that's mind-blowing. Well, yeah, that's been that's been a bad ecclesiology in mm-hmm. Southern Baptist circles as well. Yes. I mean, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, as much as we love it, uh, doesn't specify plurality eldership. In fact, you know, as even Albert Moeller had said from the floor at Anaheim, the word that they chose was pastor, because that's the word that people are most un- going to understand when it comes to that position of uh, the person who stands in the pulpit and preaches and teaches the word of God. Well, what so about the committee chairman's the response to that? What about the committee chairman's response to that? The lady that was in charge of that, that had just given the presentation, she rebuts him and says, I personally know what pastor means, but we need to have the committee to look into this. They just kicked the can down the road for 12 months, you know? Absolutely. They didn't do their job. If they'd done their job, they would have had to de- dequalify uh, <laughs> Rick Warren's church. They're not going to do that. Saddleback. They're not going to do that. Oh, of course they're not. No. Yeah, that's, that's never going to happen. Yeah, because, again, you know, it wasn't just Saddleback. That was one of the frustrating things, even about the motion that was made at Nashville. So right. somebody made a motion to put an investigation in for Saddleback Church since they were now ordaining women pastors. Well, that had only happened like a couple of weeks before. Correct. So Saddleback's in the news. What do you do with the, the Youngs? Because the Youngs had been doing it for much longer, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Ed and Lisa Young are the pastors of Fellowship Church in Dallas. Uh, and then you have uh, Stephen and Holly Furtick who have been the pastor's quote-unquote pastor. Are they really? I mean, <laughs> unqualified. He, he put a book out, and he thinks it's a badge of, of honor to say unqualified because no. MacArthur said he was unqualified. No, the, the, yeah, the he way... he's unqualified. He's proved that over and over oh, again. Oh, yeah. The way Gabe said quote-unquote pastor. <laughs> yes. Just so we, we don't let that go through here. <laughs> but you, you're, you're right, you know, when Al Mohler, I you know, shocked me. I'm not going to say shocked me because I respect Al Mohler. I, I do. But when he said it so accurately, I didn't expect such um, uh, 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 enthusiasm when he said it. If we have to word study every word in the Baptist face, we're doomed. Oh, yeah, and we're, we are. You're and, right. He's right about that. He was so passionate about that. as, And he would know because he was on the committee that <laughs> he was wrote it. on the committee that wrote it, yeah. And, right. Exactly right. And, and so – do you think, and I, I think you would agree with us on this, do you think the reason they don't want to address, say, Saddleback, is because of the monetary reasons? Do you think that's what it is, or do you think it is we just hope it goes away and with the women pastor goes away? Well, I mean, what's your opinion on that? Listen, Saddleback Church is as popular as it is, and Rick Warren is the, is the largest pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention because he is preaching and teaching exactly what Southern Baptists think. 
So the the guy that is in the pulpit uh, at Saddleback, and the reason why you have so many people that are there at that church, the reason why Purpose Driven Life has sold so many copies Ugh. is because he is scratching itching ears. Absolutely. He is telling people what it is that they want to hear. Uh, as as Paul talks about this in First and Second Timothy, false teachers are a judgment hmm. on those who want to accumulate those teachers to tell them what it is that they want to hear. And even when Rick Warren took to the floor and gave his bloviating speech oh, on, yeah. you know, here's my love letter to the SBC, which was really a love letter to himself. <laughs> so it was kind you of know, everybody's uh, applaud. It, it wasn't everybody. There were some people that were not applauding the things that he said. Even when you watch the video of him speaking at the microphone, there's one guy that's just sitting there with his arms crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the older guy. That guy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's not applauding, not going along with this. But, you know, there were... There were a lot of people that were in there, even uh, the reports that I got from people who were there at the convention were saying there were standing ovations as as uh, Rick Warren was reading through his list of accomplishments. Uh, and, and that's what the SBC wants to hear. They love those numbers. They've been all about those numbers. As long as you can put a number down on paper, then we know that it's been successful. And that's exactly pragmatism. If it works, oh, yeah. then it's good. If it's drawn those numbers, then it must be doing something godly. You have no uh, idea so how many times Chalen and I have 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 broached this subject on the podcast. That with the SBC and with too many denominations today, it is all pragmatism. It's all about the numbers, and as long as you can, and they they inflate their numbers, which we know Rick Warren inflated that number. What a million and a half. Um, pastors trained more than all yeah. SBC. 1.1 million pastors <laughs> Okay, 1.1. There's 1. no 1. way that number is true. Who did the math? There's no math there. Like 70 a day or something. Somebody did the math. Yeah, it's 70 a day. Yeah. Yep. In a 40-year career. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think that what happens, and I'll, I'll beat this drum again, what happens is then you run into easy believism again. Because of yep. the numbers, you run into the raise your hand, fill out the card, come down, follow, repeat after me. It, there's there's no discipleship done. We've lost all of that because we're simply worried about a name on a card and a, a number we can add to a congregation, and that is wrong. I mean, it is utter, utterly wrong. So we have a lot of false converts with a lot of false hope who will one day stand before the Lord. Perhaps they're part of that crowd that will, he will say, depart from me. You, they're lawless because I never knew you. They say, well, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And, uh, of course, I think a lot of yeah. that is going to be a lot of its false teachers as well. But, but you're going to have their false converts, their sheep, the ones that they led astray. They're going to be plunged into hell because they've got this false sense of security of, well, I once went forward and I was once dunked in the water, so I must be yeah. good. I got my ticket punched. Right. I'm going to heaven. And that's that's the witness that Warren was giving with that too. Like we've had so many tens of thousands of baptisms. So it's like it's like I mean, what what are you teaching in these multiple Bible studies that you claim that you have? How well equipped are these pastors really? These 1.1 million pastors that you claim that you've trained, if you're cranking out 70 pastors a day based on those numbers, you certainly have not given them very much time to understand how to. Uh, read the Bible, how to teach the Bible, how to exposit the Word, how to exhort others, uh, how to even share the gospel, what that entails. There's, It's just a number. It's like, how can we get this person out, shrink wrap them, and get them pushed out so that we can put down on the product line, we cranked out this many number of pastors or baptisms or Bible studies today? What sort of quality is even in any of those numbers that he had given? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, just like you said, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, there are many that are going to come to me on that day and say, didn't we do many mighty works in your name? 
And he's going to say to them, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Uh, I was listening to a podcast just recently. There were two guys who were talking about SBC Anaheim, and they both disagreed with Rick Warren. They both were kind of saying, yeah, we, purpose-driven life, it's it's pretty milk toast. not a lot of gospel in there. You know, there's not really a call to repentance. But you can't really ignore the fact of how many lives have been changed by uh, by purpose-driven life or by Rick Warren's teaching. So, yeah, we don't agree with it, but look at how many people have been touched by it. And I'm watching that interview, and I just wanted to go, guys, how many people have been led astray by it? That's yeah. right. You seem to be speaking as if the vast majority of people who have come out of the purpose-driven life just got more mature from that point on. And that's not that's not going to be reflected in the final judgment. It's not going to be that most people read the purpose driven life and got saved. It's going to be most people read the purpose driven life and got deceived. Yes. And I think that's what we've talked about and I, and you would agree with this is that's some of the hardest people to try to witness to, to try to share the gospel with because they think they've all they're good. They've already got their They've already got what they need. Yeah. They've got their little right. bit. They've repeated stamped a card and you try to witness to those people and you try to begin to share the gospel with those people and they almost become hard-hearted toward the true gospel. And and, and they despise expository preaching. Yeah. And, I think for that reason. Because yeah. it reveals right. truths that they yeah. don't want to know and sins that they don't want to confess. Oh, yeah, because we go book, here, we go book by book. It is literally, I mean, we're in first, we're finishing up First Peter right now. We're in chapter 5, First Peter. And we've been in that for over a year. Yeah, and, that, and, that's what, and that's what he's done for 30-plus years here, expositing verse by verse. And they don't want that. They despise that. They despise any truth in, in teaching. They want, you know, uh, well, what you've spent years doing, taking a verse and um, getting out of context. And just, you know, the life verse, if you will, that absolutely means nothing what they think it does. You know, it's not even right. close in resemblance. And that's what... My fear is you run into with the Rick Warrens. That's, you know, kind of discombobulate what I'm trying to say. But I think you end up with a lot more false converts and a lot more people that are are, uh, are tough to speak with when it comes to gospel issues. Yeah, well, I'm in East Texas, so I definitely know how that is. <laughs> uh, and and it's, it's a little bit different than Kansas was. So East Texas is – there are people here that believe they're going to heaven just because they're Texan, you know. <laughs> uh, in, in Kansas, where I was, in Junction City, which, you know, the military influence that was there, I had a pretty good mix of both. There were a lot of secularists that I would run into, not, not religiously affiliated with anything at all. Uh, and witnessing to them was quite different than – witnessing to a red stater who thought that they were saved just because they were Republican. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I went to VBS camp, you know, and I got baptized. And so I know I'm going to heaven. Uh, there is a different way that you have to witness to that person compared to the person who doesn't have any religious uh, connection to anything, has never been in church, couldn't quote you John 316 or anything like that. Uh, uh, these are these are two different mindsets when it comes to evangelizing those kinds of persons. And yeah, what the what the Rick Warren esque uh, kind of teaching has churned out are those people that think that they're saved because they can speak the Christianese, uh, and uh, and really don't have any understanding of what it means to turn from sin to Jesus Christ, to not live like the world, but but be heavenly minded, right. uh, to uh, pursue holiness and godliness, and not the things of this earth, as Paul said in Colossians three. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. They, they don't have any concept of what that means because, uh, because I've punched the card. I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's all I need, and then they can go live their lives like heathens the rest of the week.
Yeah. And it, I like the way voting when voting dresses that. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this or not, but he was he was dealing with eternal security, and somebody said, "So you mean to tell me I can become a Christian? I can be." salvifically with Christ and I can do anything I want to and and Vody answers the question and says yes but I loved his response but your want to changes yeah your, your desires in life change and if there's and like you just said if there's not a desire changed in your life then you have to question your salvation well you know and and it may be we don't all have um, major changes at first I guess you could say you know but there should be changes and you should like you said pursuing holiness as you go yeah, and there's a big lack of that. I think within the SBC, as a Anaheim showed me, you know, the veil was kind of lifted. Of we're really the minority when it comes to the belief and the way thing ecclesiology, and we're the minority. I guess I, I was naive to that. Would you agree? Or yeah, and you can definitely see how that gap widened from last year at Nashville. Um, you know, Mike Stone, who was considered the conservative candidate, lost by a very narrow margin. He lost to the plagiarist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <and then> when, <laughs> oh, we had a couple episodes about that. Oh, yeah. When, when Ed Litton's plagiarism was exposed, no one really did anything about it. There were a few pastors in a few factions in a few places that were speaking out and were saying this man needs to resign. He not only needs to resign as president of the SBC, he needs to resign from his own church. He's lied. Yeah. He is not doing the work fitting of a pastor and has uh, really made a joke, a mockery of, of his position because he's been ripping off other people's sermons and preaching them as if they were his own. There were only a few people that were calling him out on that. By and large, the SBC just ignored it. Uh, you didn't have any of the seminary presidents calling him out except for Albert Moeller in a Q&A in which he was asked a question uh, and and then, you know, spoke against plagiarism. Uh, Jason K. Allen, who's the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, he made a he made uh, like a like a condemnation of plagiarism. He made a statement that was uh, that was disapproving of it, but he didn't call out Ed Litton. And then the rest of the guys platformed Ed Litton and thought I, it was just fine. There wasn't anything wrong with what it was that he did. Danny Aiken had so, him at, at Southeastern and pretty much did an apology tour for him, you know. That's right. Yeah, and at Southwestern with, uh, with um, uh, uh, oh, the ah, president just, president there just left my mind. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but the... Um, uh, anyway, so you saw that narrow victory between Mike Stone and Ed Litton, and I think that there was, among the conservative base, there was some energy there. Mm -hmm. Hey, we got really close to winning that in Nashville, and so when Ed Litton announced that he was not going to re-up for his, his second term, his second year, then there were some that thought, hey, if we get the right kind of candidate, we can get into Anaheim, we can get that guy into the position of president and start to really make some changes in the SBC. And so the conservative base thought Tom Askell was going to be that guy, but now we see the margin widen even more. We went from just, a, you know, about a, a, a difference of like 150, 160 swing votes or something like that in Nashville to Bart Barber beat um, Tom Askell handily 60 to 40. Yeah. So that was, that was a much wider gap. And friends of mine that were there at Anaheim, too, they told me, you know, now you saw on the video that there was just kind of this general animosity toward those who were more of the conservative side. He said, I tell you, when you were in the room, it was way worse. It was palpable, there were huh? people who were who were sneering at us, who 
like like people would be sitting right next to us and just be mumbling oh those conservative those fundamentalists so that's just what they would consult that's what they would call them were the either neo fundamentalists or the hyper fundamentalists uh and wouldn't calling them conservative of course because even the those who are drifting to liberalism think that they are the conservatives so so the uh you know there was there was just that kind of attitude in the sbc and really when you want to hold to these doctrinal truths, the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy uh, of the Bible, you want to uh, you you want to say that a church's diet needs to primarily be expository preaching, and here's what that's supposed to look like. You're going to be ostracized within the SBC. We are not of the majority. We're no. now the minority voice in the Southern Baptist Convention. Hey, what was Vody's margin? Was it pretty sizable? I haven't heard that when when Vody. That one's kind of tricky. So I was told that in the stand-up vote, when they did the stand-up vote initially in the, uh, th this of course was, Vody Bauckham was running for president of the pastor's conference. Mm -hmm. Everybody who's in favor of Vody stand, and then everybody who's in favor of the other guy, they're supposed to stand. It looked like by the stand-up vote that Vody got it. And it, was, and, and it was like unquestionable. The majority are standing for Vody. But then from the, from the, podium, they decided they wanted to go to a written vote. Uh, now, I was talking with a friend of mine when all that was going on. I was watching the live stream, and I said, I really think that the written vote is because they don't want to lose the people in the room. Once once it's announced who wins, whether it's Vody or the other guy, then the conservatives are going to leave and half the room will be empty. <laughs> so, uh, so they wanted to keep everybody there. They decided to do a written vote and they didn't announce the written vote until the very end. I, I, I don't want to say that anybody was doing anything conniving, but I think that was kind of the strategy. Yeah. And so, the, uh, so then when the written vote came out, Vody did end up losing, and it was like it was pretty close, fifty-two to forty-eight or something like that. I can't remember what exactly what the percentages were. It was much closer uh, than than Tom and Bart were. Uh, but uh, but you know anything that the conservatives came into Anaheim to win, we lost. There, there was not a single thing that we came to achieve in Anaheim that we achieved. And so really a lot of churches have left Anaheim really thinking about their relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention. That was my they next question. Yeah, they recognize the drift. They don't see it turning around. And so it, it, from now on, it's like, where else do we want to put our money? Because we don't want to be investing in the North American Missions Board, oh. which is planting churches yes. with women pastors. Absolutely. And, and so, Tom got scolded for calling that out on Twitter. I mean, that was kind of brought that to our attention, you know, because we were kind of in Western Kentucky and we didn't realize what was going on with Nam and a lot of that. And following Tom, that was when we got to see a lot of, there were women pastors that were going about. We didn't know they existed, you know, through Nam. Yeah. Right. What's your, yeah. Uh, what's your perception, reception on this? I know you're not, you're not, <laughs> how is it? James White often says, I'm not a prophet nor son of a prophet, but what, <laughs> what, 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 where do you see it going? For you know us ultra orthodox right wingers, for us uh, neo fundies, I think you said neo fundamentalists. Neo fundamentalists. <laughs> where, where do we go? I mean, what do we it's do? A new term, because well, neo fundies. I mean, I where are we going to put our money? Where are we going to put our time and our energy? The the, the thing that 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 is always makes people slow to leave the SBC is that they do know that there's missionary situations, there's things that together we can do more than we can independently. And that's the good thing about the SBC, right? How it was described, how it was developed. It is a basically a mission community. 
when that money's being used to do things that's absolutely, absolutely in opposition to Scripture and absolutely in opposition to their own faith and message from, from 2000, that's just 22 years ago. So it's, we're not talking ancient history here. It's not an ancient document. What, and one of the men that sat on the board was completely ignored and then talked down to afterwards. What do you do in the future? You know, because, like, look, I, I love and respect Al Mohler, and I, I love and respect a lot of these guys, and, and I listen to your podcasts, and, and uh, I love Tom Buck, Tom Askell as well. I've, all y'all stuff, I'm subscribed to it. I've got 90-something podcasts that I listen to. This is bad. But I have a job where I drive, so I get a chance to do it. Okay. Um, but I'm three years behind on your podcast, by the way, except for the Q&As. I listen to those. Anything that you do that's, 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 that's topical on Fridays and Saturdays, I listen to those, your blog post on Saturdays and such. And, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute because I want to ask you a question about when are you going to put out part two about the SBC. Um, is, Absolutely, is, yeah. is that um, my, my irritation with it has been um, – well, I've been pretty vocal about it on the podcast, and I think you have as well, Chaylin, um, that I'm tired of this fight. I know why people stay and why they continue to fight. And I'm still at a church that is SBC affiliated, but there may come a time when that, that affiliation has to end. If, if this drift doesn't stop and I don't honestly see the drift stopping. In fact, as Chalen said earlier, we're rapidly moving towards things. And I'll go back to what I said before. It always begins with the ordination of women. Uh, if you want to look at, at the now defunct, they basically don't exist evangelical lutherans and the episcopalian church in america and i could just keep naming various uh presbyterian denominations and very uh, several baptist denominations we're not the only one they have no power anymore no strength they have no spiritual growth they are dying the churches are boarding up they're closing down the buildings are being turned in, being raised and turned into parking lots what's going to happen to the sbc because if we do this and the conservatives actually do pull out Conservatives generally, generally, I believe, tend to be more giving to the church. The smaller, the smaller churches that are more mm, scriptural tend to give more. You know, you take that group of churches out, and you just let the elite stay in with their large number. They have they have large numbers. There's no doubt. But how many of those are going to be? They can't alone support the entire denomination and the North American Mission Board and all the other things that they do. I mean. Do we leave and it just becomes a shell of what it once was, or do we stay and continue to try to fight? How much longer do you think the fight's going to last before we have to give up? Well, uh, one of the great things about being Southern Baptists is that we're autonomous churches. Absolutely. We do not answer to a hierarchy. There is not uh, the president of the SBC being over all of the rest of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's something that the world just simply doesn't understand. Like no. when the sex abuse scandal broke and the Houston Chronicle story came out, uh, that Sunday morning when I was I was about to preach uh, when that Houston Chronicle story came out and and I decided I, I went ahead and read the story even before I got into the pulpit and preached. And one of the things that I could tell about the way that they were reporting on the SBC is that they just didn't understand how the SBC worked. So they they thought it was this thing that had to start with the top down and the, the president needs to do this. The executive committee needs to do this. Uh, in order to change things around in the Southern Baptist Convention, we're autonomous churches. The convention exists to serve the local church. The local church does not exist to serve the convention. But the way things have been structured as of late, the way things uh, have been run, we're losing that autonomy. Because as you'll see, is some of the measures that uh, that have been passed in the convention in response to the sex abuse scandal. Um, 
some of the measures that have been passed take that autonomy away from churches. Like a church has to be willing to participate in this investigation. If they're not willing to do that, then we're going to remove their autonomy uh, or, or remove their autonomy. We're going to disfellowship them would, yeah. would be how that ends yeah. up going. And so, and so you can see how kind of like certain pieces have been put in place that are, are kind of removing the autonomous aspect of, uh, of the way that the SBC is supposed to function. And so the, uh, but nonetheless, churches still are self-governing. The Southern Baptist churches are, are in and of themselves not answerable to the Southern Baptist Convention. So each church is going to have to decide on their own what it is that they want to do. Uh, the congregations are going to have to decide that. Our church is deciding that. I'm not at liberty to say where we are in no, that process. No, no, absolutely. Wouldn't want you to. Is deciding. Right, but but with but each and every church is going to have to decide that. Now, personally, I will say that I checked out of the Southern Baptist Convention a long time ago, um, <laughs> I, and I won't say that I'm smarter than anybody else. I just saw these things coming before anybody did. It's nothing like that. It's. Uh, it, it's just that in my own personal convictions, there were things that I saw happening in the Southern Baptist Church that I could not personally support anymore. And so when it came for me to, to move from Kansas to Texas, my wife and I were talking about, you know, do we really want to continue in a Southern Baptist Church? Or if I'm going to move, are we going to take this opportunity uh, to actually find a church that's not Southern Baptist? Because my, my heart really was not with the Southern Baptist Convention anymore. And so she, uh, she and I, as we talked about those things, we just decided the opportunity to work with Tom and be at First Baptist Church Lindale was just too great an opportunity. And uh, we were willing to help Tom with uh, the ministry he was doing here and, and myself following under his leadership in whatever direction this was going to go uh, with the stuff that we've exposed that have been going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. I've just said Tom, to Tom, hey, tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Uh, so, you know, writing some of these articles that I've written about things that are happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, I tried to say ahead of Nashville last year, there was an article that I wrote where I said, Ed Litton is platforming his wife who is preaching on Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, and so the, you have a lot of guys who will sound confessional. They will sound like they will say, no, I believe that the pastor is a position that's been limited to men. But then you look at their practice and you see that they're not doing that. They're actually platforming women or they just shrug their shoulders at it and go, yeah, really, it's not that big a deal. At least they're preaching the gospel or whatever else. Uh, and so what, what we see happening in the Southern Baptist Convention um, is that our statement of faith is really quite useless. Now, you would ask me, like, uh, prophetically, what do I see coming in the future? There was somebody that I saw say, and I saw this on Twitter before I got banned. <laughs> I saw someone say uh, that in 10 years, the Southern Baptist Church or the Southern Baptist Convention will be completely receptive of women pastors. I actually think we're already there. Uh, and then in 20 years, they're going to be receptive of same-sex marriage homosexuals uh, being ordained as pastors, so on and so forth. I really don't think that there's going to be a statement of faith that's going to come out of the Southern Baptist Convention in the next 10 years that is going to be receptive of women pastors. I could be wrong about that. But, but the way that I see things as they are in the Southern Baptist Convention, I really think what's going to end up happening is they're just going to ignore the statement of faith. I don't even think they're going to try to write another one. Right. They're just, it's just... It's going to be a statement of faith that it, that's there. You can follow it if you want to, 
but it's really it's not required. You don't have to follow it, and you can still fellowship with us. I mean, you have Adam Greenway, the president of Southwestern. That was the name I couldn't remember earlier. Okay. Adam Greenway and and Jimmy Scroggins were saying on Twitter they just want a bigger tent, and there's going to be some churches that I probably I wouldn't personally attend if I if I was a lay person and was looking for a church to attend, but hey, whatever makes our tent bigger, we want to welcome those churches in. And I'm looking at those statements going, guys, that's exactly not it. That is, yeah. that's not what we're supposed to be going You're by. contradicting because yourself Jesus, in your own statement. Exactly. Jesus said this is the narrow road. Yeah. Uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians saying that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. And yet we're, we're still trying to open this up to easy believism to get the most number of people possible under the same tent. And what we're going to end up seeing is the, per the perpetuation of false converts, just as we had talked before regarding uh, what Rick Warren does. Sad. Well, and, and to, to steal a phrase from Todd Friel, he always says it's a camel's nose under the tent when he's talking about various things. I think we're past that point even. Yeah. I think we're, we're way oh, yeah. beyond that point. Um, yeah, the dromedary is in the tent. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it, well, it, it's open. It's actually an open flaunting of the Baptist faith and message for these really large and influential churches to already have female pastors and then they come to the church and say, but I love, you know, as Rick Warren did, but I love, this is my love letter to the SBC. This is what we've done, and this is what we're doing. In other words, we're doing all this. What are you doing except telling us that we're, we're wrong? Well, that's not the point, Rick, or anyone else that's doing this. The point is, is your ecclesiology, is your actual service in line with Scripture? Period. To me, it all boils down to, are you in line with, with, with Scripture? If you're not proclaiming Scripture properly... And if you're not living in accordance with Scripture and submitting yourself to the authority of Scripture, you're not a scriptural church. You're not part of that. That's just me. Yeah. You know, there was a, a Southern Baptist teacher who said to me, Southern Baptists just want to hear what they want to hear. And, and you, you get that at the Southern Baptist Convention because what they'll say from the platform is just what Southern Baptists want to hear. And, and, and look at the conflict. Look at kind of the factions that are developing in the Southern Baptist Convention. You've got people that are saying, I'm an inerrantist. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the sufficiency of, of, of Scripture. I believe in the deity of Christ. I believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. I believe in the virgin birth. They will affirm all of these things. They will say all these different confessions they have signed. I've signed the, the Chicago Statement. I've signed the Nashville Confession. You know, all these different kinds of things uh, to, to show where they are in their orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as long as you're willing to affirm those things you're accepted and you're received in the Southern Baptist Convention. But the, the factions that have developed are the people that are going, yeah, he says that. He says that he's an errantist, but look at the people in his seminary and what they're teaching. It's contrary to inerrancy. They've accepted standpoint epistemology, yeah. which, is, which is where, hey, the, the way I read the Bible as a white guy is different than the way a black guy reads the Bible. Yeah, that's standpoint epistemology, and that's going on in our Southern Baptist seminaries. The people who point that out are the ones who are being ostracized. You're not really a Southern Baptist because, look, you have a Southern Baptist who's not willing to say what Southern Baptists want to hear. They want to be faithful to what the Scripture says, not just what we're able to serve one another with by word of mouth. Uh, and, and so that, that's where the division is occurring. It, as long as the Southern Baptist Convention is able to exist by saying what we want to hear, then confessions of faith mean nothing. 
because then once a person starts doing something that is contrary to that statement of faith and somebody's going to point it out and the and the response is going to be just shrug your shoulders and go well follow it if you want to but you don't necessarily have to follow it then there's no point in having a statement of faith when you i want to expound on that standpoint epistemology for just a second why do you think people are so afraid of a historical grammatical hermeneutic why do you think in general people are afraid of that because it offends the world. There you go. And, and the, you're, you're I, I, dead on. I agree with you wholeheartedly because what's, what's the book that you quoted when you were talking about standpoint epistemology? Though? There was the African hermeneutic that was that, that was that the book. Am I quoting that correct? Yeah, that's right. So so there was uh, there was the – oh, sorry. I got a delay in my headphones there all of a sudden. Uh, there, was, there was the book that was written by – oh, I can't remember her name now off the top of my head. But it was the uh, – uh, the, hang on. I've got it on this uh, – uh, this thing right here, maybe I can scroll down and find it real quick. Um, I didn't mean to put you on the spot the, with that. I know. <laughs> I had my article up just in case I needed to go. Yeah, for, to uh, that's where I wanted to ask about next. And I'll just go ahead and plug it. From Majesty Men is, is the website where the article is there that you can read where there are seven questions. And I forgot, Brooks, what's the first name of the gentleman? Brooks, uh, what's his first name? I'm sorry, say that again. The, uh, the article Brooks that you Brooks. responded to is Mr. Brooks. What was his first name? I went absolutely blank, Gabe. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, so it was Dr. Nate Brooks, Nate who Brooks. was the professor of Christian counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And uh, so he had uh, he had presented seven questions on Twitter and responded to those questions and used the questions to kind of, you know, launch his explanation of what happened in Anaheim and what the state of the SBC is. And so I, I responded to everybody to read that at article. least at the time of this particular interview, I've only responded to three of them. I have the other four yet to go. Right. Um, but but then, of course, I'm offering counter responses. I did not see the same thing in Nashville that uh, that he saw. Um, but one of those things being, you know, that uh, how he talked about uh, how there's a constant affirmation of a uh, of a conservative doctrinal hermeneutic uh, by people uh, uh, sorry bleh, man i'm getting really tongue-tied all of a sudden <laughs> uh, but uh, all of our presidents of our seminaries the two men that ran for pre or all four men rather that ran for president of the southern baptist convention they're all inerrantists they all believe in the sufficiency of scripture and so what is there to say to this charge of liberalism? How can you say that there's liberalism when they all affirm these things? But once again, it goes back to they say what people want to hear, but what you see in their practice is totally different from what they're confessing with their mouths. Absolutely. And that's where we were getting at with the, the historical grammatical hermeneutic. It confronts people and it makes people uncomfortable when we begin to look at the Bible historically and what the original author meant to the original audience, it confronts people, and they don't like it. It's the same thing that occurred in the Roe v. Wade overturn in the um, recent Mississippi abortion law case. You have uh, guys like Alito, guys like uh, Thomas, who are bringing you back to the construction of the Constitution itself, and they, and they say— Nowhere in the Constitution does it affirm a right or imply a right even. There's no explicit or implicit right to an abortion, nor is there technically a right to privacy, implied or explicit, in the Constitution. Right. Well, that ramps up the volume of, of rhetoric on the, on the other side, the left, because they've spent the last 70 years interpreting in the Supreme Court, interpreting, and other federal courts, interpreting the Constitution as a, quote, living document. My fear is that's what we do. While I think the Bible is the words of life, right? These are the words of life. Jesus said, you know, 
exactly. these words and live. On the other hand, that doesn't mean it's a living document that changes with each generation, and that is how the, the hermeneutics of most pastors today in many denominations, but definitely in the SBC, I'm going to speak mostly about the SBC because that's what we're here to talk about today, but they view the Bible as, well, you, you've got to view the Bible today through our cultural lens. That's a term they like to use a lot, cultural lens, today. And don't think about what a bunch of dead people thought it meant. What does it mean to you today? What does the scripture speak to you? And this used to burn me up when I was in churches that used Lifeway. You'd always have those things where they would have the little things, and how does this scripture speak to you? That's not the point. What does the scripture say? Right. What did right. it mean to the author and the original audience that he intended to read it? That's yeah. the problem about historical and grammatical meaning is it, it doesn't leave any options for you to say, well, a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man, et cetera, et cetera. Right, absolutely. So when, when we have that grammatical historical approach to interpreting the scripture, uh, what we mean by that is we want to know what the original author was saying to the original audience. Exactly. And therefore, what is the Holy Spirit saying through this writer? And then we can go from there, from what this author was saying to this audience. We go from there to uh, seeing how that points to Christ. We, we, uh, we draw a line from there to the cross, uh, understanding God's redemptive purpose in this, in history, uh, how, how Christ as the sacrifice for us, uh, as an atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins, as he rose again from the dead, uh, how, do, how does this scripture point to that and give us the gospel? And then we draw a line from there even to modern application. So there is a way that this text, which was written 2,000 or more years ago, does apply to us today. It is relevant to us today. Oh, absolutely. We have to follow through the proper channel of interpretation to get there. But they skip all that. Jump. Right. They, we, they, we they go straight it. to uh, application, and uh, they run to that, and they bypass yeah. the exposition part. Right, exactly. Yeah, we can't we can't make it Aesop's fables. We can't turn it into a book of proverbs where we're just going to apply this proverb in in whatever facet or aspect of life that we are in. There is a specific meaning and intention with that text. I, I've been going through parables with my kids recently, and I've been showing them how to interpret a parable correctly. And I've told my kids there's one interpretation to a parable. Jesus meant this parable to point to one thing. So how do you find it? How do you find the meaning of this parable? Uh, and even that teaching, teaching my kids that about parables, that offends the worldly-minded because they want to read all kinds of things into the parable of the prodigal son. Sure, they want yeah. to read all kinds of things into the parable of the good Samaritan. Well, yeah. This is about racism and all this. No, it's not. There was, there was one intended purpose to this parable, what did Jesus mean by it when he said it? Uh, and so we understand what the author was saying to the audience, then draw a line to the gospel, then draw a line to modern application. Uh, there may be 10,000 ways that this applies, but there's only one interpretation. Even our application, though, has to follow the interpretation. Just because we say there are multiple ways that this text can apply, that doesn't mean that you have the liberty to apply it in 10,000 ways. The application still has to flow from the interpretation. Uh, and that, that, of course, is going to be offensive to those people who do not want to submit to the fact that the Bible is authoritative over every single person, whether they believe it or not, whether they understand it or not. It is God's Word, and so it presides over every person. Uh, and we have a duty as preachers to know what it is that God has said 
and to preach that to his people in fear of the Lord, not in fear of man. That deserves an amen. That's absolutely seriously. That that that's exactly right. Um, R.C. Sproul said it. I believe it's R.C. Sproul. What I'm saying that there is one meaning and thousands of applications, but we must pull the meaning out before we use the application. Exactly. If that application doesn't match the meaning, then you've got a bad illustration. And that's the problem, like you were talking about. They, they want to go, it's allegory, it's illustration, and then application, and they don't want to discuss what did that actually mean at that time. You can get the meaning of a, of a, of a, um, of a parable by, dis, by learning what the words specifically Jesus uses words at times that would be specific to those people that they would understand this is what he was saying that we won't we'll miss that in our English translation but there's ways to get backwards to get to that and Chalen's always said we spend our time when studying to go back to what they saw as opposed to what we want to see and that's another thing the cultural lens will make you want to see this this is actually America I found America in biblical prophecy we've talked about this before I mean I hate to throw all those people under the bus. I used to be one, but um, but the uh, but you know the guys that read the newspaper to find out when Jesus is coming and how how he's going to rescue America first and then Israel and then all this other stuff. You know, I mean, it's just that that's that's cruddy hermeneutics. I mean, that's just you want it to be that so you see something that's not there. And I, I think that's, that's right. one of the first things I do when I sit down and look at a text. I'm not a dispensationalist, by the way, just so you know. I'm a historical pre- <laughs> pre-millennialist. When, when I sit down and look at a text. is judging you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> at least not out loud. But I, but I used to be one. I did. I grew up in that. Look, I grew up IFB, Independent Fundamental oh, Baptist. Yes. Right. So I was yeah. one of those. Lots of dispensationalism. And KJV <laughs> only. And so I'm anathema to a lot of people that used to know me because I'm, I'm not King James only and haven't been for decades. So and we, you know. I totally lost my train of thought, absolutely, because I just kept thinking of you with your little IFB American flag in the pew. Um, we had it. We had the American flag on one side and the Christian flag on the other, and we did, we did the Pledge of Allegiance. Absolutely lost a complete train of thought, thinking about him as uh, – but it is a sad reality, the state of a lot of churches when we talk about that, because you think about the most Fourth of July messages that we just passed, what were a lot of those messages. And i, I got to ask this question. Have you done a uh, when we understand the text on Second Chronicles seven fourteen yet? I think it's yes, I have. You have. I'll have to find that one then. Yeah, you know because that was probably quoted a lot this past Sunday. I would say if I had to guess. Oh yeah. Oh, if yeah, my people who are called by me. Yeah, I knew you'd pick up on it in just <laughs> yeah. a second. Yeah, I, I was going to wait for you to get there. I'm a little but slow. I, I don't know what I was going to say. One of the things I always say when I begin to sit down and study a text is, I always tell this to my wife as we're talking. Somehow we've got to. Imagine a bridge is what I always say. Is we've got to get on the bridge and somehow go back in time and discover what Paul meant when he wrote to Timothy. Paul meant what Paul meant when he went to the church at Corinth. You know, we've got to cross that bridge back in time before we be before we begin to be able to exposit the text, explain the text, apply the text. Like you said, I love the way you put it. There are are, are we can point back to the cross, point back to to to. Christ, but we've got to dig them out of that passage. Right. And I, I love that. And I want to throw this out. I, I want to see if you're okay with this. And if you're not, I understand. We're, we're kind of croaching up on the hour here, Mark, and we know how people, uh, the hour and 10 mark here, and we know how people's attention span are, if you're like me. Would you come back <laughs> on and do a part two to this? Because we've only scratched the surface on the SBC stuff. I want to talk about your article more. Had all more intention to talk about your article, but this has been such a great conversation. Would you join us again to do that, to, to kind of pick up on this? 
Yeah, in fact, I think a good idea would be let me get part two out. Let me uh-huh. get part two of that article out. Uh, and then after that, read that, and, and then we can uh, discuss this some more um, uh, even um, uh, with regards to things that are going on in the SBC. And incidentally, I, I think that the SBC stuff is good to follow for anybody. It doesn't matter whether, whether you are a Southern Baptist, where you are denominationally. This is the largest Protestant denomination. Mm-hmm. Technically not a denomination because it doesn't have that hierarchy structure, as we said. It's really a fellowship of autonomous churches. But, okay, for the sake of the argument, we're going to say it is the largest denomination. Uh, and it is the most reflective of American evangelicalism at large. So what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention is is a good reflection of, and you could probably call the Southern Baptist Convention the most conservative as well of the denominations, even though we're seeing that liberal drift still being the most conservative of them. Yeah, that's scary. Uh, of the big denominations, anyway. And so what you're seeing happen in the Southern Baptist Convention is going to be reflective of evangelicalism at large. So it's very, very important to pay attention to those things, uh, not just shrug your shoulders at it and go, eh, we'll just leave the SBC and whatever happens there doesn't matter to anybody else. Uh, it's, it's good to have an idea of what's happening in the church in America in general. So we know what we're preaching to. We, we know when, when we're preaching what it is that's going on in the world that these words need to be spoken into. Because any pastor that is developing a sermon, he is writing a sermon for his people, for that congregation. And the way that I preach to my congregation in Texas is different than the way that I preach to my congregation in Kansas. This is a different group of people with different needs being affected by different things. My interpretation of the text is still the same, but my application for this people that I'm preaching to might be somewhat different. Uh, and so and so this is why it's important to stay up on some of those kinds of things that are happening in evangelicalism. And that's why we're talking about it. And even if I wasn't Southern Baptist, I would still be looking at this and evaluating what's happening in the convention because it would be reflective of what we see happening uh, in evangelicalism in America altogether. So will, will, when do you think article part two of the article is going to come out? What, what's your guess? I know you lost some of your, well, your research. After <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did. Right. <laughs> Some of my research was on Twitter uh, and I had I had uh, uh, Twitter uh, links to quotes and videos that I had DM to my wife so I would know where they were. And when my account got nuked, I lost all of that. So that delayed part two. Um, but Tom's got me on a time crunch because we have our own committee here at the church that is evaluating things going on in the SBC. It's just too much, you know, because we're not able to get it in a one-hour conversation. No. Here. We're going to have to break it up into right. a part two. So there's just too much going on to uh, to, to kind of whittle it down into a few thoughts. And so the our own task force that has kind of been evaluating things that are going on in the SBC, there's, there's too much for them to be able to digest all of it. It's easier to give it to them in summarized chunks. So that's why Tom wants me to finish these articles. That way I can... I can put that out to the task force as well so he's got me on a time crunch to finish it hopefully i got it done this week and then maybe next week sometime we can pick up again and and resume the conversation that would be great great. now i know roy had a question that i've got one myself you wanted to know yes um the translation that you teach and preach from what is your preferred translation for that I am preaching mostly this year from the Legacy Standard Bible. Really? Oh, I, I a lot of people have made that I think switch. every sermon that I've done this year has been from the LSB. All of my teaching on the podcast has been from this translation. 
Um, most of my teaching has been from the ESV. Okay. So, you know, listen, as you said, you're like three years behind on the podcast. Yeah. And still be in the. I knew you had changed. I'm pretty good at picking up on the language, and I knew you had, tra- you had changed translations because I listened to some recent ones uh, just to be yeah. kind of bummed up on what we were going to talk about. And your reading, the reading was different. And I was like, where is that coming from? It's similar to the <laughs> NASB, which I use. I use the, the NASB 95. So, and on our podcast, yeah. that's what we use. And when we use another translation, we, we tell people, you know, well, we're, we're, we like the way it reads in this or whatever. But, um, yeah, I just wondered what you had, what you had gone to. I, I don't own a legacy yet, so we'll, we'll have to see. And a lot of people have switched to that translation. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people loving that translation. I haven't read it much yet. It's really good. I, I was, and I'll tell you, I was skeptical. Even though I heard, hey, John MacArthur is uh, is helping to kind of edit or oversee a translation, I was like, well, I don't really want to go to the John MacArthur translation. You know, that was, <laughs> was kind of the joke in my mind. I love John. I just I just didn't want to like. It just kind of felt like a like a, a loyalty thing. Oh, the John MacArthur translation. <laughs> so I was skeptical about it at first, and uh, and then when I started reading it, man, it really is good. It is a really good translation. And so uh, that's not just me fanboying out on a John MacArthur translation. I've read it, Philippians it's, it's and Mark. That's the only thing I've read. I've read I, Philippians and Mark. Yeah. I was just thinking if Rick Warren would have translated that, it would have been the Rick Warren translation. would have been the name of it, I do believe. <laughs> the eisegetical <laughs> Bi- Southern Baptist Bible. Uh, now, my question is this, and I, I, this is a question that I always like to have. If, so if you were hypothetically stranded on an island, and I know two books, one would be the Bible, what would be your second book? Uh, the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's yeah, Progress? Oh, a Bunyan yeah. man. Okay. And, and I tell yeah. you why I asked that question. John MacArthur was asked that question years ago. And you know what his second book was? The Treasury okay. or Scripture Knowledge. And totally. so, and yes. So, and so Chaylin had to go out and get one. Well, I'd never heard of one at that point. And this he got is, me one. <laughs> this is going like 10 years ago. I didn't, I'd never heard of this book. Nobody ever told me about this book, did anything about it. And that was what he said. And so I've always been fascinated by that question. After it was asked, I'm like, yeah, I've never thought about it. what would be the second book, you know. So that's interesting, Pilgrim's Progress. That's that's it's great. I'll, and everybody's answer is different, and I'm fascinated to know that answer. But um, I would say the the book that I reference more than the or not re- reference more than the Bible, the the book that I reference more than any other book apart from the Bible is uh, Matthew Henry's commentary. Yes. Okay. So if if by default, by the book that I just grab off the shelf the most often, that ends up being my second book that I'm on a desert island with, it's going to end up being Matthew Henry's commentary. So do, do I have Matthew Henry to blame for you being pulled out of the uh, proper hermeneutic towards the end times? Uh, no, it's not. It's actually not Matthew Henry <laughs> influence. I'm joking. I'm joking. I was very pan mill for a long time, and it was a friend of mine that told me, you can't be pan mill, you have to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> we tell Dan that here all the time, but he hasn't. He's not uh, listening. He's if, not if, listening if he's to got a, If he's got a choice, he hasn't told us publicly. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 we can't hammer him down. So what? here's another question. Sorry, I'm full of questions now. What's your favorite commentary set or commentary individual? I mean, I'm sure it's different for – different books, but what would you say would be your favorite commentary? Right now, it, it, it actually depends on what I'm reading. Uh, so, right, uh, and where did this book go? Oh, I've got it under my computer. Never mind, I can't pull it out. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get the camera up higher, huh? Right now I'm going through J.C. Ryle's commentary on John. Okay. Uh, and that's really good. Um, but I, I probably don't have a certain commentary set I would value over any other. I really like using Bible Hub. John Gill's commentary is real good. 
Uh, and like I said, I still I still reference Matthew Henry quite a bit. The pulpit commentary is also good. Um, so, yeah, there's probably not one in particular that I lean toward more favorably than another. Um, it's just it's kind of whatever is at hand that I can grab and and uh, it helps me in the study of the book that I'm going through at that. Sure. Time. Well, Gabe, we thank you for for coming on today. We'll let article you know part two get out. Um, then we'll set out and do this again. And because, like I said, we really have not even begun to scratch the surface of the SBC. You know, kind of a lot more background of you, which has been enjoyable today to really to really learn in that conversation. But we have touched on some serious issues with the SBC. And we appreciate and you taking the time to come on and do this with us. Yeah, and we really, really yes, do. Sirs. It means the world to us. Now, we're going to stop the recording, but stay on for just a second if you don't mind. Sure will.